Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Hayes, and coming out today, writer-director A.J. Edwards. His new film, Age Out, it stars Ty Sheridan, Imogen Poots, Jeffrey Wright, and a pretty unrecognizable Brett Butler. Um, I highly recommend it. But uh, first up, what um, interesting stuff I watched this week. If you want to follow uh, my film diary, it's on Letterboxd, and my username is Bodamander, B-O-D-A-M-A-N-D-E-R. Um, I had a good week, as uh, December's usually are, because uh, people or film viewers like me um, are trying to compete with um, all the top ten lists coming out, um, just so we can say we saw what others have said it good, and you know, trying to compete with film critics in New York and L.A., even though we're a small market. Um, I have a chance next week to go see a Marriage, uh, marriage Story in a theater, and someone would recommend distinctly seeing it. It was shot on film. And um, it appeared on Netflix Friday morning, and I'm a, I, I really, I think Noah Baumbach's one of the best writer, particularly writer, but writer director. Well, and he's a great director too, just filmmaker in general. He's really making some incisive stuff right now. So I just watch it right away. And true to the rants uh, I've made already on here, I had, I mean, it was I started Friday morning, got a bunch of phone calls, paused a bunch. Um, but even still, it, it blew me away. One of my movies of the year. Um, there's one particular scene in the middle that is just devastatingly acted. Um, there's also, I gotta be upfront, uh, I have a weird thing as a child of divorce. I have a fondness for um, movies about marital breakups. So, um, you know, I'm a really big fan of like the season four finale of The Sopranos or, or continuing spoiler alerts, um, certain scenes at the end of uh, Richard Linklater's Before Midnight, even though. Further spoiler alert, it's not about a marriage breaking up, but there's that tension there. So, um, But um, amongst the other things I saw this week, the oddest, most notable is I finally got around to seeing um, Louis C.K.'s movie, I Love You, Daddy, the movie that he had to uh, buy back from Orchard after that New York Times expose about him um, masturbating in front of uh, a set of women without their consent. And um, I had read reviews about it. I saw the synopsis. Uh, I thought I figured I knew what I was getting into, um, but I, I guess I went in just because in the back of my head, um, uh, Louis C.K. at the time, I think he got canceled so fast, and um, at the time he he still was a really distinct filmmaking voice. His show in particular, um, I mean, like you know, people fond well before all this happened, people really a lot of the great chops with his um, like his David Lynch episode. I just really love his uh duck stanhope episode i've raved about it and um horace and pete's got some really really the writing in that in particular like no one's no one was writing anything like that on film like um maybe in certain plays but not on filmmaking and so um i want to see this um if you um so not to get too far, far into the plot but the basic gists are he um his daughter's turning 18, and uh, he's a rich, he's a rich TV producer um, and writer, and um, she's uh, starting to um, she she goes to a party with an analog for Roman Polanski and Woody Allen, and um, they start up a potential relationship. And um, I mean, Lucy Kay's always had a lot of influence from um, Woody Allen, and um, so. But this, um, I, like I said, I knew what I was getting into, but it's just, it's so weirdly confessional, 
before he got caught, but it's almost like a dare to catch him and to like, it's, it's, it is mind boggling. There was a um, joke in his last stand up special about his daughter starting to, uh, um, he just was assuming that she's going to have a, um, the life she's going to have uh, with, with her sexual identity. And she, he figures she's going to have a ton of bad sex. And so he makes a joke about she's going to have um, just a bunch of bad dicks in her face is what he says. And he then starts hitting his head with the mic and says, dick, 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 dick. And it, it illustrating. It's, it, it's a funny get, gag in the bad choice words. But um, in uh, the movie, there's a very unfunny, serious version of this joke. Or maybe not specifically this joke, but talking about why there's an arbitrary line for when it's okay for his daughter to have sex and is jaw-dropping just some of the stuff in this movie and I, I say this as um i do hope that as a like the key to a lot of these uh me too figures that have gotten financially uh, um hurt by their scandals um i hope he eventually has a sufficient apology my personal hope is that he'd have a stand-up special that would very that would illuminate this behavior um so far it doesn't look like that's going to be the case but anyway um oh, i hadn't even mentioned this movie the style of this movie is in black and white it's done 30s hollywood style it reminded me a lot of um that movie uh nothing lasts forever the uh, snl movie from the mid 80s that never got released that had uh, bill murray in it um so there's this like weird artifice in it and you know like a lot of louis episodes maybe it just didn't click but then on top of the content I'm telling you, yeah, bizarre. So AJ Edwards is on the show today, and as he alludes in the interview, um, he and I have known each other for a long time, and we worked together for a long time. And one of the exciting things I, I, I hope comes across in this is, um, for those of you who knew me, say between like 2008 and 2013 and noticed that I disappeared into my work for a long time um you get a glimpse of just the joyous day-to-day conversations we used to have AJ AJ is just one of my favorite people and um we um he's one of those old friends that we don't live in the same town we don't talk as much as we used to and um but you know get on the phone it's it's a well to be honest whenever you get him on the phone he's never he always wants to just to know about you it's hard to get him to um talk about himself so it was a great pleasure to have him in a format where i just got to ask him questions um i towards the end of this i asked him about the reaction to better angels which for the most part the reviews were um just kind of um we talk about it in the talk, but it's just they, they went to the shorthand of his mentor, Terrence Malick, who he'd worked with for a long time. And we, we talked about him in the interview and their work together briefly. Um, the hard part to describe to other people who've seen, I was lucky enough to witness a lot of the formation of a lot of um, some of Terrence Malick's films in the last few years. And I know how much he, um, he, he relied on AJ and um, how much AJ's voice is in these movies, even though clearly, indisputably, um, these movies are um, 
in Terrence Malick's voice. And it's a voice that he worked a long time to get to. And it's a voice that distinct is, you know, not encouraged in the film industry. And it's a marvel that he's able to do that. But it's also AJ's contribution to it. And I can't recommend um, watching Age Out enough just because he's starting to... um, He's just got a sharp filmmaking mind, um, just very incisive understanding of film language. And um, like a lot of great artists, he also just has, um, every once in a while he'll be talking to him, and he has a a thought or an opinion out of left field that you just never considered. And um, I think as the start of it, he's going to have a long career, and he's only going to get better and better. And um, Age Out, especially, is already indication of this. And I can't recommend seeing the movie enough and um, getting excited about his next movie, too. So without further ado, A.J. Edwards. What number am I? You've, you've done three? Three. You'd be number three. Uh, number two just uh, went up today. Excellent. Yeah. You've already getting feedback? No, the only feedback I got was in the first episode, I bitched about Martin Scorsese. <laughs> what about him? I, 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 I just said that there's certain things about um, the Irishman and him being kind of the uh, uh, king of cinema, or not king of cinema, but uh, I don't know what the right term would use, um, um, patron saint of current cinema is... Um, Sometimes it puts an undue expectation on his movies itself, and we forget that he's not perfect. And I think, he, uh, I think auteurism is kind of going away a little, and he's now now the embodiment of it. You're saying that people are praising it too much, that there's no critical eye to it. No, I've I've seen a little more critical eye of it, but um, I was really annoyed at uh, what the way he called out Marvel specifically, Marvel. Uh, and one, I felt like it was, I didn't mention this on the thing, but I thought it was very, um, deliberately like timed for the release of the movie. They were trying to create controversy. And also I just, I think his target is wrong. And, um, did you read the Brody or the Matt Solar Zeitz responses? Mm, I don't think so. To, to him saying that the Marvel comments, they were both. What'd you say? Well, I mean, the result, the, both of them were kind of long. It'd be a lot to go into, but. Richard, I bet it'd be a nice. I bet Brody had an interesting response. What, what you were saying. I mean, I, I I saw some people speak up for Scorsese that made more sense than Scorsese himself, but I found <laughs> I was really annoyed at uh, the essay he wrote. the um, The fact that he cited Samuel Fuller and Hitchcock in there as evidence that that was art, but Marvel's not. Like, well, okay, that's the literally the exact same argument critics used against both of them in the fifties and the sixties. Man, I want to hear the response to what people, I mean, what people think of uh, you laying it down on your last podcast. I, I didn't really go that hard. I'm also in this weird spot where I'm trying to, um, like, I'm not, I haven't been a, a film critic for a while or done anything public like that. And um, there's this Fincher quote I heard, by the way, of Aaron Sorkin that you never, you should never really insult, uh, uh, tear, tear down movies because all movies are hard to make. And so I'm trying to keep a positive vibe on here, but sure, and or realistic, and you know, or all movies are like. There's also a really great uh, Tarantino thing that uh, don't hate a movie. You know, every bad movie or movie you had a bad enjoyment is something interesting you can learn about from it. So what optimistic quotes? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 hard to keep mindful, but um, 
So, uh, what are you up to right now? What are you working on? You mean tonight immediately or in the grand scheme of things? Um, both. Why not? Both. Are we even recording? Uh, we've been recording for like, um, oh, uh, for okay. a few minutes, actually. Um, in the, in the grand scheme of things, I've just been writing a lot and then, uh, editing, trying to get next projects going and enjoying New York City all the while. Uh, was, um, is H-Out playing in New York? It played in New Jersey. Where in New Jersey? I don't even know. It was held over in, I think, Austin. Where was it playing in Austin? Uh, I think it was Austin, yeah. The theaters where it's been popping up have been random to me. They don't match up with the list I was given by the distributor. So I didn't even know it was going to be in New Jersey, and in the morning of, I saw that it was there. I saw it. was even under the wrong title. It was under Friday's Child, not the new one. Really? Crazy. Which we we should explain. That's where it played uh, at South by under was the title when it played at South by. That's and, right. And yeah, all of development, casting, shooting, festival, making the festival rounds. It was always called Friday's Child, and then played Deauville to too. A, uh, to get a facelift after the long festival run and it taking so long to finally hit the public through feeders, they thought change the title and freshen things up. Hmm. Oh, how long was the whole uh, process from in the shoot to uh, getting into theater? We wrapped shooting in February 2016, and then the movie just came out last week. So that's <laughs> that's a long time. Well, I, I guess that's the um, you 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 live firsthand. That's the life of indie filmmakers, where especially in the market as it is right now, where um, it's getting harder and harder to find distributors to put out some of the stuff, or there's less and less home runs every year. It feels like. Well, this was a different situation we actually had plenty of distribution offers right out of south by there was internal problems that prevented the movie from being sold can you you don't can you speak to those or do you not want to <laughs> no <laughs> yeah very but succinct, you, I mean, very by, succinct. By, by my silence you can imagine how litigious and ugly they got oh and so but the 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 out the, 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 the look of it is oh I'm sorry, the movie didn't sell. That's too bad. Uh, but it wasn't that at all. It was that the offers that were there were oh. turned down. Well, let's um, let's rewind then. Um, you, um, I've never actually gotten a beat on where you're from because I know you're from all around. I mean, sometimes I, I think of it as you're from the Bay Area. You were based out of San Antonio for a long time. You have a long Virginia base. Where exactly are you from? I usually say Texas for a short answer, but... Yes, I was born in the Bay Area. My folks are still in Northern California, but I'm pretty much a Texan as far as living for so long. Okay. San Antonio, Austin. Was San Antonio where you were where were you born at, or where you were lived your earlier at? Yeah, middle school, high school, and then college and afterward Austin. Okay, was elementary school in the Bay Area before? Yes, exactly. Specifically Walnut Creek. Uh, yeah, so kind of near Cole Slinker. Okay. Um, do you um, uh, do you remember the theaters around there? Yes, there was a theater. I don't know if it was called the Dome Theater. That's what my family called it because it was a dome, a very like mid-century looking suburban movie palace, and uh, it was beautiful. It it, it was destroyed a couple years ago, which was heartbreaking, but, oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was right there in Walnut Creek. Did you, um, was that where you were seeing your first movies? 
Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't. Rem I think the first movie I was ever taken to as a baby was Back to the Future, but R the first movie that I remember in a theater is like uh, it's either Batman or or Naked Gun. Naked Gun. Yes, <laughs> it was. It might have been a double feature. We also had a drive-in feature. Oh. Nero, which was incredible. Do you, the suburban, you know, you can make a fort in the back and have a double feature. Did you like bring food or stuff to uh, one of our previous guests was talking about that? Oh, yeah. I love to uh, uh, bring fast food or Subway sandwiches. And uh, yeah, what was it? Batman, Dick Tracy, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. It was, uh, it was incredible. Have you been to it's a. It's so foreign now, the idea of a drive in movie. Well, that was my next question. Have you been to a drive in lately? No, have you? There's one near here. I mean, oh, that's um, great. Well, in Austin, there was the uh, Blue Light. I I had gone to one of those shows there, but um, I don't know if um, you, uh, Brooklyn or any place would have one. It seemed like something. I mean, cars being what they are in New York. There's got to be something funky like that near here, but if there is, I'm not aware of it. Where they 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 like come around, and give you stuff in mason jars. <laughs> right. Or the yeah, the Austin when they did the jaw screenings on the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. are. I I actually never went to one of those. I don't know why. Um, so do you, um, who took you to the movies when you were, when you were both first going? Parents, both parents are movie lovers, uh, and you would see movies in good times and in bad. Okay. So if everyone wasn't feeling too happy, get out and go to the movies. If it was Friday night and we were all feeling great, go to the movies. Was it a weekly thing? And holidays too. You know, that's always Thanksgiving tradition, Christmas tradition. Birthdays were marked by movies. Really? So, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you remember a, a movie to birthday pretty well? Or is it one of those, like you have Jackie to... Jackie and I were just talking about that the other night. I saw... Jackie, I your, wa your wife, I, Jackie? My wife, I'm sorry. I was uh, talking about seeing in middle school, Eyes Wide Shut on my birthday, which took some convincing uh, <laughs> to be able, allowed to see that movie. I imagine. But that was a, that was a birthday movie. Um, what else? I think Batman Returns might have been, and uh, and then as far as holiday movies, the one that stands out the most at the Dome Theater in Walnut Creek was seeing um, Hook. Hook. I remember that. Well, you're a big Spielberg fan, so um, would would that have been one of those ones that first got into you, uh, Spielberg-wise at least? Yes, but when I saw Hook, I was only five, I think, and I didn't know what a director was or anything like that. I just loved the movie and the experience. The first time I was aware of a director that that job existed, that movies were made and not just suddenly popping up on a silver screen magically was Jurassic Park. So it was Spielberg uh, still. It was Spielberg and I, I, it was, uh, I saw a 60 minutes special as a kid and it was a little 15 minute thing about how that movie was made and the director's name was Steven Spielberg. And I walked out to my parents, and I said, Dad, the man that made Jurassic Park is named Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what were your parents' film tastes like? Hmm. By, uh, both love action and adventure. They love uh, the Godfather films, Rocky films, comedies like Slapstick, whether it's Steve Martin or... Uh, yeah, Martin Short films, John Hughes, uh, 
in, uh, independent films. You know that that was not a term tossed around a lot. But I remember we had a theater. This is now Texas, but okay. Outside of the woodlands, somewhere near Houston, a town called Tomball. I remember going to be taken taken to a film called uh, Goodwill Hunting, and it was it was playing at like the independent theater, or as it was known, like the smaller theater. So and you would go with your parents on that. that movie, and that was there. But so I think you know. The parent parents' taste was varied. Did you? Um, uh, what were your friends' ta- film taste like? And did you go see movies with friends a lot? Oh okay. yeah, and uh, I could also I could bicycle to the movies, which was great. Uh, so sometimes we would go, save up money and go in, or sometimes you could you know, friend hold the door open for you, sneak in. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but always see movies, especially during summertime. Okay. Well, when did um. Was any time there's a New York sound for that me. is a New York sound. Uh, when uh, in relation to the um, scene, the Spielberg um, Jurassic Park behind the scenes thing, um, did you start to get the bug? When did you first start to? Did you pick up like a video camera? Um, did you? Was it something you just started studying more film? Yeah, uh, I used to love using the big uh, VHS camera, the one that like goes on your shoulder. Yeah. I forget what those are called, but those big guys. And then I switched to my my mom, got me a high eight camera, and I remember shooting both stop motion films. What kind of stop motion films? films? Well, I, I I first saw Tim Burton's Frankenweenie, and uh, that short film he made, Vincent. Uh, Frankenweenie's not stop motion, but the, there's both Vincent is that first one that he made, and so I was so inspired by that, and then Wallace and Gromit shorts and Nick Parks' Creature Comforts and uh, so you know we would shoot my friends and I my brother and I would shoot stop motion with figures we made or even uh, like things us moving around the house strangely going upstairs going down it, you know you look at it now and it looks like early cinema experiments <laughs> you know the kind of crazy wacky stuff you see in the early 1900s was it so was it very um were, were the, the um stories you were laying towards were they jumping into fantastical from that by just um nature of doing something stop motion or oh yeah fantastical stuff horror stuff i love horror movies so we would do uh edgar Allan poe short films or we'd do science fiction films that we made up like with aliens and spaceships and costumes uh yeah it was uh, and you know cutting all in camera. Yeah, so no, I remember no cutting VCR, in camera. VCR, no nonlinear editing yet. You know what's crazy is um, my nephew. Um, I um he came over the other day and I gave him a bunch of toys. He's really into uh, the Spawn character, and I found I had a bunch of old Spawn figures, and I gave them to him, and he showed me over Thanksgiving. He's done this a few times, but he's been making um, stop motion animation stuff on his phone with those oh, figures. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, it was really cool. Well, I was really giving him. Um, credit for was he um inten- he innately understood what an over-the-shoulder shot was doing and he was <laughs> like he it was weird he was actually following axis pretty well too i was giving him credit for that that's so great yeah i've seen friends and family friends do like lego stop motion videos as well some of them are incredible like you say with how quickly young people get the grammar yeah. Black shot over the shoulder, close-ups, the, reaction shots. The grammar in particular, it's always, it seems like every in generation understands visual gra- uh, grammar and how to uh, 
um, communicate stories visually much more than the previous generation, just by sheer volume of how much they ingest in their in their eyes. Oh yeah, yeah, I believe it. Um, do you remember um, like a first date movie you saw? Yes. Let me think. So you moved to, yeah, uh, think... you would have gone to Texas around uh, middle school. Would this have been, this would be in Texas probably? Yeah, but I was just about to say my first dates, I wouldn't really count as middle school. You know, not, we weren't driving yet. And mm. well, we to, uh, movies and groups and all that. So I would say the first date would probably be with Jackie seeing The Majestic. Oh, wow. You, so you wouldn't count your parents driving you there in, in the groups? I, but I guess it, 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 was, it wasn't one-on-one. It was more like a group. I mean, there would be, you know, uh, girls that people liked and or you know and all that, but it wasn't... Uh, yeah, it, I wouldn't call it a date. When I, if I were to say the first one, I, mean, I wanted to go see the Royal Tenenbaums and assumed that it was out, but of course, being in San Antonio, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so instead, we settled on the Majestic, which opened that same day, what? which I did not care for. What did Jackie think? Oh, I bet she probably wasn't that big a fan either. We were both so excited to go see, you know what, I was, let's see, how old was I? I was six, 15 or 16, and we were both so excited to see it, as was everyone. And then, yeah, it didn't come out. But you know what it's like. Yeah. I grew up in cities that didn't get what is it called, first run or the immediate showing? So you have to yeah, wait. The, the platform strategy. Um, so wait, your first date was with your current wife? Exactly. Wow. Um, yeah, I always say I'm like Bono. I think he married his high school sweetheart. Okay. Um, when did you um, first start um, to branch off from what would have been mainstream cinema? Even before high school, I remember that... Um, my brother got a job at a video store when I was in middle school and he was in high school and we could just raid everything, you know, and there was a foreign section and an independent section. I think it was Hollywood video, which I don't mm. We got a Hollywood disappeared, video. Disappeared uh, forever ago. We, but, uh, I, w- yeah, I, w- I remember seeing... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just... I, I remember seeing uh, Eight and a Half. And wow. That was so, I, I was like 12 years old and that was... It was something I'd read about, and I was so excited to see it. And then it was just like all the classic kind of textbook foreign uh, films, you know, The Seventh Seal or La Strada, um, like early Kurosawa. And um, and then the, around that same time, the AFI list came out in 1998. And I was just watching TV one night, and I remember it randomly came on, and there was this special going, here are the hundred greatest... American films, I had all these actors and directors talking about it, and it was so fun. But then with that list and working with, you know, I mean, my brother working at the video store, he and I were just seeing everything we could. What was his taste like? Same? Uh, were they influential on the subject on of Age Out, he introduced me to Gus Van Sant, uh, oh. Drugstore Cowboy, and My Own Private Idaho. Um, those movies were really dear to him, and... Uh, um, yeah, what else? He loved Singing in the Rain. That was a movie he would watch all the time. And, yeah, he had a... I mean, his taste was always, it was varied as well. Okay, well, um, what was your early film reading? I mean, because you, 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 
you've you always struck me as someone just uh, we always talked about how similar a lot of our um um teenage years in film fandom seem to be That's oh yeah yeah they are they are like a lot of mix of high and low brow between the two of us <laughs> it's still to this day yeah um i remember reading there was a jonathan rosenbaum book called i think like the film 100 and he just wrote about 100 people about the history of cinema that he thought were was important and that that book was very educational it had you know both completely populist famous people as well as uh people like lw dixon or billy bitzer you know surprise you know names that i had no idea who they were and uh from the silent era and uh what else was important oh was it is it joseph mcbride is that the biography? yeah the i yeah. um was he i um didn't i give you an orson welles book of his yes exactly the, he wrote the orson welles one and then he wrote the spielberg one and no, that, Sp- I, that spielberg one i read you know when i was in middle school and then there's a uh coincidentally we had to do a book report on someone in middle school and it, it wasn't the mcbride one that you gave me later for or sure else, yeah well that came out much later it's, a, it's this was it simon callow that could be right yeah it was in it was this Are we talking about orson welles exactly it was an orson welles biography yeah yeah um, no simon callow so i did i, I had to think, do a book report on him and then dress up as him didn't didn't he write a book that had a lot of um, involvement with uh, orson welles's daughter yeah, I may have. Uh, I mean, I haven't looked at the book since. I think there are better biographies that, like the one you gave me. I haven't. I haven't ever gone back to that one from middle school. But it was. Uh, I feel like well, I have it in my library somewhere. I've, I just, I knew it was at uh, our local library, so that was the one I always went to. But um, do you remember when you discovered Kubrick? Yes, it would have been. Um, I think my brother and I sneaking. Clockwork Orange. Oh, uh, wow! Or even no, I might have, it might have, or probably The Shining. Okay. When we were kids, sneaking that at Halloween. But when I was watching that, then I didn't know who he was. When I became aware of who he was, it was with Clockwork Orange. Okay, okay. I, I for Halloween, I got to show my nephew The Shining for the first time, and that was something. That was it's. What's um, the reaction? He liked it. I mean, he the coolest thing recently with him was he he uh, for a period in October he was coming over Saturday nights and I sh- we were watching some horror movies and the thing is now one of his favorite movies of all time. He had the greatest reactions to it. He um uh, after the the first scene where the dog starts to transform, <laughs> he's turned to me and he said, "This is the greatest thing I've ever seen." <laughs> then um, at the end of the movie. He immediately wanted to watch behind the scenes, and he said something along the lines of, I'm just amazed that human beings can create stuff like this, and meaning the creature design, and he wanted to know how it was made. It was, it was... Gotta send John Carpenter a letter. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, part of the reason I'm doing these podcasts is I'm trying to get to the core of just, like, of reminding people, and I keep asking people childhood stories, but why they like movies, and I don't, I don't want the, like, the Pollyanna cliche stuff, like, I'm really trying to elicit what the feelings got out of them from people, so specific movies, because my other thesis, which I've, I've given to you a lot of times, is that the big movies are the movies you saw when you were, real, like, between 13 and maybe 22, like, um, um, just really hit you, um, but you were just starting to develop your um, indep- own independence too, kind of. So I completely agree with that theory, and it's also the same with music. 
Sure, sure. Um, should we talk about music? Because you have some really interesting use of needle drops in your movies, particularly in Age Out. That's nice to hear, yeah. I'm sure proud of the soundtrack, both original and licensed. It's a nice mix, and uh, we're trying to get the soundtrack out right now. Who did the original uh, music? Colin Stetson, the saxophone instrumentalist. Okay, how did you get in, um, how'd you hook up with him? Um, I had listened to his music, uh, I, could, I was working with Khalil Joseph, and we were working on the Arcade Fire film, and Colin Stetson would be in and out of that picture, Okay. and I just wrote him to say how much I loved his music, and so we had a little correspondence then, and then I started licensing his music for Age Out when we were in post-production, and he said, you know, that's great that you're licensing the music, but if you want original stuff too, I'd be glad to compose it. Oh. And then we, you know, struck up a, a collaboration from there. Okay. Um, so um, going back to, um, I, I do want to dive into both um, Better Angels and um, Age Out, but I kind of want to keep on the narrative stream. So um, sure. you were, how did you get to Virginia? When was Virginia in this, in the equation? Uh, just moving a lot from uh, my parents, different, you know, they'd be transferred and things like that. So uh, uh, I had graduated high school, then headed to headed to uh, Richmond, Virginia, and um, you know, was going to school off and on. Then just taking uh, classes at the junior college whenever uh, I had the wherewithal for that. What were you going to school um, for? What was I going to school for? Yeah, just, I mean, just the bare minimum, really. I wasn't, I wasn't degree bound or. Uh, you weren't taking film classes or anything. No, no, no. This was just, yeah. I was just doing core curriculum and, uh, you know, going through the motions like a cat taking a bath. Uh, you know the but the, and then started working on the new world. That movie came to town, and. Uh, well, saw it isn't, advertised on local morning news. That was the and so that started to interrupt class even more so. That was the story I was going to prompt you to tell, but you actually saw started working. Yeah, well, yeah. you can't really talk about my beginning of school classes in Virginia without mentioning the. What, 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 yeah, that's the reason it started to just eat in more and more. I mean, I was already drifting away from school and choosing to work instead and I was writing a lot and I had these crazy ideas that I was going to go make a movie for I don't know $5,000 or $10,000 and uh, so that was at you know like age 21 or 20 21 I was already you know I wasn't focused on finishing school so well briefly going back to uh, age out was I mean that was that script was older than better better angels wasn't it yes not the script but the idea and the uh, there was like a treatment. It, it it was a little different, different town in Texas. Uh, instead of it being a young woman that is wronged, and they sort of begin this odd romance. The woman was a little bit older, so there's greater age disparity. But the main idea of forgiveness, this terrible accidental crime, rooting it in crime and punishment, all that was. Yeah, I thought I had thought of it. Back in high school, I remember your tagline was "Crime and Punishment in Texas." That yeah. was also one of those taglines you got quickly annoyed with. It seems strangely, like. it was also coinc- It was coincidentally also from sixty minutes. 
<laughs> Spielberg, <laughs> you, you accidentally stole Spielberg's idea. <laughs> yeah, I just saw this special on this kid aging out of. Oh no, you were okay. Well, you really lost for six minutes. I thought, oh man, that'd be a great beginning for a character. What's he gonna do? Where's he gonna go? Who's gonna find him for better or for worse? But it was just a little fifteen-minute clip about this one guy that they followed. I saw it in high school and I wrote it down. I thought it'd make a good beginning, and then I held on to it for I don't know what is that, fifteen, eighteen years or something. So, are there a lot of scripts from this time that um, you were, or at least ideas that you were writing down that you still have? Is that something you want to um, you want to make? Or just or certain that might form into something, or did they, you have they any... definitely they like they form into something else? Like you said, it's nothing concrete, but there are definitely echoes of things I was interested in that that roll over into other ideas and other scripts. Okay, so I, I've never thought about that. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, in general, I, it's a broad question because obviously you, you're going to accumulate in the creative life. You're going to. Um, come back to old ideas you've had forever that are going to organically change over time. But um, I don't know if there's any specific. Um, if if you were starting to write it on, if there was anything st still came out fully formed that you've still used or. Well, I won't use it now because our friend Henry Butas sort of used it, but it was I'd been really interested in around that time, early twenties in Death in Venice, which uh, of course has been made into a movie before and it's really great, but. Uh, I thought, oh, you know, you could update it to contemporary times. It doesn't have to be a composer. It could be something else. The sexes of the characters could even be changed. The locale, everything. Mm. But mm. I thought... Was it Visconti who did the Such a simple story. The main version? You, know, you could achieve it with little, few resources. Yeah. That, um, so you... So the, the thing is, you saw an ad off TV. Was this a, a casting ad for... Or were they or for looking I extras? I think it was cast and crew. It was just some corny thing talking about how you know Hollywood's coming to Richmond, Virginia. It was the kind of thing you can imagine and uh and then I called and got a uh meeting set up and that was it. Okay, so were you like a set PA? Yes, yeah. I was a a set PA. I was the only guy that I showed up in a suit to my interview uh, you know just because my parents insisted well you should dress up you know talking you should look good and so i was sitting there on the bench with the other candidates looking ridiculous uh yeah wearing a, wearing a suit in order to you know guard the parking lot and log footage or something well, who was do you remember who the interview was with it was with trish hoffman who was the executive producer okay it was her and sarah green the producer okay um yeah, it was very. It was unnecessarily formal. Now looking back on it, which is so funny. Did they did they react to the suit properly? Oh yeah, I mean I think everyone just thought it was uh, hilarious and ridiculous, and they were all you know they were kind and. You're a da you're a dapper dapper man. You'll be a dapper man on set. <laughs> exactly. And when I walked out of there not knowing even what job I was interviewing for. I just wanted to like I mean like everybody there, you just want to be part of it, and and then you're looking around in the hallways to see what actors are walking by or if you see you know, the main director himself, and it was all just so exciting. So how long were you on, um, on the, were you on the entire shoot? I wasn't really on the shoot, I was just working with my friend who made the making of, or he became my, my friend, he made the making of documentary that's on the DVD of The New World, well, his name's Austin Lynch. Was there a train? And so I was there just to help him with whatever he needed. Is that what you started out as, whenever you... Exactly. I oh. mean, I would drive... 
people to set and then base camp off and on if they were shorthanded or I'd do office runs, you know, whatever. But then the main thing that I always go back to was helping Austin with whatever he was shooting. Did you, were you, did you edit on, on, on the behind the scenes? No, no, he was the editor. Okay. Well, how did you, and that's a nice mysterious thing to talk about. Uh, he has both this, you know, hour and a half long chronicle of the new world with all this amazing behind the scenes footage that he shot. And then director Michael Almareda shot it and it was completely rejected. Oh, Um, not because of its quality, but because of, you know, oh, Christian Bale doesn't like to be filmed, and then the director, Terry Malick, doesn't want to be filmed. Um, New Line was super excited about it, especially after the Magnolia making of and the Lord of the Rings making of. Yeah, the the Magnolia one in particular. I, I, I just rewatched that a month, like a month and a half ago. That's one of the best behind-the-scenes. Yeah, and this, so this was just in that vein of like covering everything, but then it got reduced a whole bunch, and now it only covers a a, a small aspect of production although an important one but it, he also was even chronicling part of editing which was neat what's funny really how did he how did he do that he came he flew to texas and then went and shot our office where we were cutting so there's hank corwin and sar klein and marco shikawa and uh you know the whole ed- it was just so great you don't see making of usually chronicle yeah you production what's funny though is Sorry, go ahead. A, a year or two later he then goes and does the same thing on there will be blood and that one is also rejected. So there's this unseen 90-minute making of There Will Be Blood that has Daniel Day-Lewis getting into character. But then like halfway through that movie, the same thing happened where he went, you know what, I don't want to be filmed anymore. And then the director, Paul Dunn's Hammond, goes, you know what, I don't want to be filmed either. So it, uh, But they have these two making ofs that I've never seen the light of day, even though they're amazing did and you, chronicle such an important thing. Did you ever see... Um... He he never finished it, but speaking of our friend Khalil Joseph, he um, he got a uh, about twenty six minutes cut of his behind the scenes that he was working on for To the Wonder. Did you ever see any of that? Yes, yeah, I it was I good. don't know if I saw a whole twenty six, but I'm I saw uh, his start of it, whether it was fifteen minutes or twenty six minutes, and it, it was great. You know, because he was talking to everybody on set, and they were all telling their two cents when they're tired at the end of the day and then he was chronicling everyone living in the same hotel and it it was the only making over it felt like what production feels like yeah uh, it wasn't just people sitting with a pretty pretty backdrop behind them going well my agent gave me the script and i knew i had to do it right you know, it wasn't that kind of making of it actually felt like the rhythm of production um yeah i was really unfortunate that cleo wasn't uh, able to uh, finish that for person. that has two unfortunate aspects he had his ripped from him, and then on top of that, before him, Les Blank, the you know one of the greatest documentarians of all time, wrote a letter and said, "Hey, I'd you know I'd love to make, I'd love to chronicle the making of To the Wonder. I'm from Oklahoma," and then he was turned down by, by uh, Papa Terry himself. Oh, and I, I remember saying, "You are insane." I think I've you know you're preventing Les Blank from doing his work. You gotta. Tell him, yes, you know, he's a fellow countryman in Oklahoma there. He'd do an amazing job. Like, they're going to do this making of anyway. Instead of having it be terrible, have Les Blank do it. But, of course, you know, that's what happened. But 
Man, that would have been because I think he died a year later. Yeah, I remember when he he was friends with um, um, Courtney. Yeah, Courtney Stevens, who's uh, been making some interesting stuff on her own lately. But uh, she they were mutual friends, and uh, so yeah, I remember she always that. Had really, uh, I always loved hearing her stories about him. It sounded like they had a, a cool bond. Yeah, yeah. Um, you back to real briefly behind the scenes and editing because I remember uh, when I was filmed for editing and I was just like I don't know what to show you man we're just we just sit in front of the the screen man um, you you make the bit I I constantly use this point when I'm pointing out to people like how misunderstood and bored people are with the editing process um, the greatest um, documentary uh, making a documentary on film or the most entertaining is uh, heart of darkness and do you want to <laughs> i know what you're gonna tell why don't you go ahead and say it you know, just that thing when yeah it's a 80 minute or two hour film i don't remember chronicling brando going in and out of the part and suddenly wanting to back out but then he shows up on set and coppola trying to keep all the money together and the, trying to keep the crew safe and happy they're in the jungle and all this stuff, and it's a great making of. And then they wrap principal photography, and then there's a, some kind of title card that says, two years later, and it's them getting out of the limos. For the, the premiere. premiere. For the premiere, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, as if the little process called post-production never, like two years later, boop, the movie magically arrived at the premiere. It's just it's so great, especially knowing that film. Yeah. which that... had so many iterations, had so many challenges. Yeah. It's great. It has one of the most legendary um, post-production processes and everything you learn about it. They they just modernize them. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, but Walter Murch, though, does have another... He got his uh, his time in the sun in terms of those making ofs, though, because he's on the, the that documentary that they make all film students watch called... I think it's The Edge. Like That sounds familiar. Is that... It's called like On the Edge. Like some, the Cutting Edge. It's called the Cutting Edge, and they cr- they're like covering him making Cold Mountain, and so you actually just sit there, and he'll be he'll go, well, I think I'd like a close up here, and this is, but it's just you actually get to just see, sit with him for five minutes as he cuts it, Cold Mountain. Is that the one um, that has uh, Cameron at the beginning where they're they're stuck trying to cut stuff out of Terminator Two, and he's just like, well, let's think outside the box, let's try a new experiment, and it, let's cut out every twelfth frame. <laughs> and uh yes they showed it. the footage of it and it's it's you, yeah it, it was a nice experiment it was a nice, <laughs> nice nice stab yeah um well let's go back to um new world you were doing the behind the scenes how did you get into the editing room on the movie itself i just told them that i uh had austin roots i could put myself up i had friend a generous friends that were there to let me stay with them and uh just wanted to help out in the office, and they needed the help, so how long there was, I was. How long was the editing process on that? One year. That's, I mean, kind of... It was a studio film. It was different than, you know, Thin Red Line was also one year. But it was Terry's only production. after the New World that the post-production schedule started to balloon. Although, I realized the first two movies had long post-production schedules and reshoots and all that, but... Um, yeah. You were there for the entire year? For the entire, yeah, for the New World, yes. Okay, and can you um, um, tell me what uh, Terry told you after that was done? Didn't he send you with a list of books? Oh, yes, that, yeah. Well, I I was immediately, 
I didn't want to just go back to junior college and go back to just getting a job in retail or whatever I was going to do. I wanted to keep up in, uh, obviously, movies, and I knew he was bound for his next one. So, you know, I just said, my goodness, let me help in any way I can during this development process. He gave me a list of books, which I will not share. It will completely change the course of the conversation. Fair enough. But uh, he would just say, here, we can read these together and let's... uh, you know, talk, and then luckily I got to keep working with him, and that, I mean, that to say the least, you know, that was the next 10 years. Okay. Um, and, uh, do you want to, and then, you know, after had, after having seen the New World production, and all of post-production, it was wonderful to then experience development, casting, camera tests, pre-production, financing, you know, uh, all the way, uh, all the way to the next film, Tree of Life. Okay. Do you, um, so, was there a long gap in between uh, while you were, or did you jump yes. on? Yes, it was uh, about, let's see here, three years between the movies. And what was great about that is I was with Nick Gonda, who produced Tree of Life, along with a couple of other producers, but then he produced Better Angels, and it was during that gap between New World and Tree of Life that he and I started talking about Better Angels because mm-hmm. Nick wanted to produce. Um, Better Angels so was the I first w- one you talked to him about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, started sharing the idea with him and talking to Terry about it as well and reading books together about young Lincoln. And then, uh, you know, we'd have meet kind of, what do you call them, table readings together. Yeah. Uh as it advanced into script form. And then Nick was so helpful in the casting, uh, you know, all his ideas of how to, how to make it happen. So that's what was essential, not only working on New World and Tree of Life, but it was during that, the interim, during the development of Tree of Life, that it was able to work on Better Angels and get that into a strong place. I remember one time telling you about how, um, you know, this podcast is based out of uh, Evansville, Indiana, and it's very close to where Lincoln lived in Indiana, and I was talking about how I was uh, into Link, obsessed with Lincoln when I was in kindergarten, and you kind of matter-of-factly were like, yeah, every kid was obsessed with Lincoln. Do you remember what your, um, when your childhood Lincoln obsession was like, or when you first really started doing a deep dive on him? Deep dive wasn't until I was an adult, but I think I was... Like some kids that have the morbid fascination with his assassination, mm, um, right? That was, I think, the first time. And my sons are the same. They'll always want to hear, you know, the the, the, the the night in D.C. when he's killed. So, okay, um, yeah, but but that that was when it began for me, and uh, um, but then reading. Carl Sandburg's book and uh, Lincoln's three brief autobiographies themselves where he's sort of elliptical about certain details that make you curious about what he was leaving out. Hmm. Uh, and then reading David Herbert Donald's was, biography. Was, was, yeah, was like, a lot about his relationship with his dad, which was you know pretty big part of the subject of the movie? Was that what he was exactly, leaving out? Exactly, yeah. Uh, he was not very forthcoming about that, but his law partner, William Herndon, uh, spoke about it, you know, after Lincoln's death, um, about some of their candid conversations they'd have working together about his dad, and then certain details just that 
anyone can put together, like the fact that he didn't attend his dad's funeral is sort of curious. Although there are some historians that say, oh, well, there wasn't easy access by train, so he couldn't have attended. But there's also people saying remarks like, once his dad died, Lincoln felt that he had already said goodbye to him and that he didn't need to go to the funeral, that his dad, in a way, was already dead. Um, well, didn't he come back for his mom's funeral? Or he came back early. His before. biological mom died when he was a boy, and then his stepmom outlived him. Oh, okay. There, yeah. w- there was something like a final visit, anyway. Um, there was a final visit, yeah. He went and visited his uh, stepmom, Sarah, before he went off for to be inaugurated for the okay. inauguration. Uh, that's when he said bye to her. Okay. Last time he saw her. Okay. Um, so, um, do you want to talk much about the casting process? Because... Um, you would have met. Um, I mean, you were you guys. What you drove all over Texas for the uh, Tree of Life casting process, um, and it would have been where you met Ty, right? Ty Sheridan. Exactly. Yeah. So Nick, after hearing there on there will be blood, they that casting team got permission to go into schools, sorry, a school, and then they could look around and kind of quietly select people that they thought were appropriate for the film and then inform the teachers or their chaperone, whoever was leading them around the school, who they thought was right. And then that chaperone or school official would send the child home with a letter that they were to give to their parents, not knowing the content of the letter. Then the parents could decide whether they wanted to be a part of this strange film invitation or not. Um, well, how long was there the... would be blood. They only did it at one school, I believe. They went into first school, they found the kid, and he was cast. Okay. Well, how long and wide was your process? So on There Will Be Blood, on The Tree of Life, we did it every day for a year and a half. And so we looked at tens of thousands of kids, uh, you know, and have all these tapes and DVDs and profiles and photos and stuff still somewhere in some warehouse. But uh, that's probably actually not good to share. Right next to the ark somewhere. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, the film took so long to get made that we actually did cast the film once with a couple boys that would be the O'Brien kids, and then the movie took another year or so to get made, and then they hit puberty, and so we recast it. Oh, I I didn't know that. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, But because we went, we circled back with those kids and said, oh, hey, you know, let's check in with them. And, you know, one of their voices had already dropped and were changing, and they're, they're... the boyishness was gone, that you could see them starting to get bigger. Like the Edward Furlong um, thing on Terminator 2. Where he what's had, that? He had to loop most of his lines because he was <laughs> yeah, puberty the, hit. The, the voice that cracks and all that? Yeah. That's so good in that movie, though. Yeah. Um, so, the, was um, you were second unit director on Tree of Life. Was that your um, first time directing a uh, camera unit of people? Or had you done anything else, like short film-wise? Uh, no, that was it. I mean, I other than playing around with friends, that would have been the first, and the first with film. Oh, wow. That was what's also strange is, you know, it's a very different experience to pick up a film camera than a video camera. The weight, the unwieldiness of it, uh, even the way that it captures imagery, is so, it's just so foreign to someone who's never worked with it. 
uh, were you, and will always, now it will always be. I mean, that's it's now going, it's now gone. So well, your eye is one of your most. Uh, you have such a distinct way of looking at it. A lot of it's kind of I always looked at it as the accumulation of um, your influences. But um, were you doing a lot of photography at the time, or did you just dive in and just uh, shoot for the film and and just take direction from from the director and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I I loved experimenting with cameras when I was a kid, but no, I was not in any way near some savant or a tech I didn't have a technical mind I wasn't developing on my own or experimenting like a real photographer so yeah I guess it was really diving in or being thrown in because it was a job that I didn't even ask for it just wow you know it was it, I remember the day it was just uh, told to me that I would be the second unit director because for the three years between New World and Tree of Life I had been doing all these camera tests and trying to learn how to I would be given a list of learning how to shoot certain things uh, and and then you know by the end of that list of you know 600 700 different setups or things to shoot it would it, I realized at the end that, that had been the education of yeah how to try to shoot what what the movie needed so, so it was almost like all those the, the three years in between it was like a camera warm-up and then on day one you know I was better able to do it Wow. So did you, um, you, so after the shoot was done, you dived in the edit room there, right? Or was there any overlap? Were you editing a little while you were shooting? No, I was just getting, I remember getting notes from Chris Roldan on like, step it up, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Which was so true. You go back and look at the early days, you know, for using a film camera for the first time, it just does not pass muster. And so he rightly was just he was staying on it and going this is not equaling first unit obviously and i needed to work harder so there's just a lot of lost sleep and uh sweating blood over trying to get better okay so um when did you uh did you get married before the shoot or uh uh during or had it already the shoot already happened got married before the shoot okay when was your first child born? It was it was during post, wasn't it? Two th- yeah, in two thousand eight. Uh, so we shot. Principal photography started in March of '08, and then my son was born in June. Okay, so I always had post ending at um, uh, August two thousand ten. Does that sound right to you? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So were you were you uh, already? Um, where was uh, Better Angels at at that period? Gosh, that's a great question. I remember... It was like another year before you shot, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Well, a little, a little longer than that. But yeah, I remember trying to I was trying to find a cameraman to work with. And cast was going in and out like they do. You know, you get one person in place. And then you go to go grab for another. And then one person backs out. Either because they're going through a messy divorce or... Someone got pregnant, and then they're, now they're going to be pregnant, so they can't do the movie. Or someone else takes another movie and then ditches yours. So on that movie, we were, the casting was like musical chairs until finally it all perfectly sunk up. Well, what were the... Um, um, first off, while editing with long hours, what, how were your viewing habits then? Did you, was it you randomly got to go out to one night? Were you watching stuff after you got home from the editing room? or? You mean during casting? Into tree going into because once uh, tree of life ended, did you you had a little more time to watch some stuff? I assume, is that true? Yeah, I would just work at night. Uh, you know, you'd finish doing whatever 
post-production or pre-production duties are required by the Tribal Effort to the Wonder, and then whatever time I had early, early in the morning or late at night, that was spent writing, going through casting tapes. Did you jump right into doing, um, um, going to Oklahoma for To the Wonder? Uh, yeah, the day that I, I wrapped Tree of Life, pencils up, and then that weekend drove up to Oklahoma. I remember by myself, just drove straight up and started pre-production on that before even anyone else was there. Okay. Let's let's do a little bit, a bit of a macro view. In total, with Terry, from whenever you first uh, worked on New World to some whatever the most recent work was, how long have you worked for him? Um, Including off and on. Yeah, I guess it's been like 12 or 13 years. It's getting confusing now just because the last few years I've just sort of popped in. It hasn't been long term. Okay. It'll be like I go and work for a month or something or two months. You know, it's not permanent. Okay. So on um, Better Angels, you guys shot in upstate New York? Yes, which is strange to you and everyone in your state right now because right. it doesn't look like New York but uh but you pointed out that it did you know I thought you, you you it was a foliage thing or something you told me well it was if you had to frame out the vistas of upstate New York because that doesn't look anything like uh you know southern Indiana so we were framing out the exact thing that most people go up there for and revel at yeah um but yeah we wanted the kind of rolling terrain of these hardwood forests and high canopies, old growth trees. Um, and so for financial reasons, we ended up shooting in New York and we shot at uh, the Mohonk Mountain Preserve, built the cabin right there, and uh, we're shooting in the fall of 2012. What were the movies you were watching going into it, or in general, movies did you watch going in for to get ready for the film? Uh, the Elephant Man, The Miracle Worker, Pather Pinchali, The Wild Child. Just bl specifically black and white movies? I or really, child? Well, those are all black and white, but the, I guess it's also movies about teaching and learning. And, kind and children. Of, yeah, children and unexpected love and friendships forming. Um, so those were, yeah, I was watching watching those and um, trying to think what else. Yeah. Do you, when you watch a movie for, um, uh, um, are you looking for tech inspiration? Are you looking for technique? Are you looking for, um, you know, something thematic inspiration? You're saying before any movie or specifically before production? I think specifically for production because it would be pretty, uh, be pretty desolate to say I watch all movies just to. <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's what I was hoping you're asking it for. Yeah. Uh, before production, um, movie watching probably slows down i did name those ones and that was maybe more during writing or mm. casting like when i'm getting ramping up in that realm but that whole i remember back to spielberg he's i remember seeing some documentary with him 25 years ago or something and he talked about before i make a movie i always watch these five films and it's seven samurai it's a wonderful life lawrence of arabia i forget what else he names but Greatest show um, on earth. What, what's it's that? not really great show. He said that's one of the first movies he ever saw, and it's funny. It's uh, perception in history. I always found that funny, but <laughs> but yeah, I can't. I I think 
kind of slowing down on the movie watching and getting your head in another place is mm. sometimes more helpful. But I've only made two movies, so it's not like I'm uh, old hat at it. You know, not, this is not a routine. So how was the um, how was the shoot? I, I was it uh, for Better Angels. Yeah, there are no interesting stories about it because it was all so perfect. The cast was so. I thought I remember you telling me it went pretty smooth. Yeah, it was. There were no bumps. It was. We were just shooting this gorgeous location. The cast was so prepared. And how many days did you have? Uh, happy. I think we shot for twenty-three days. Okay, so kind of slightly more than an indie, but just barely. That you still got a lot of. Uh, I mean, it's it's so. I always find it just so Herculean that um, these movies are shot in twenty twenty-five days. It's just. Oh yeah. The scale it's, shows. It's crazy when you hear about an independent film that did have forty days or fifty days, and you think, "Wow, that's." That's lucky. Uh, the thing that was nice about this film was, uh, you know, you get in the, you wake up in the hotel and then you get in the van and it's cold and the van takes you all the way to set and you're nervous the whole time, um, and everyone else is talking and you're just sitting there nervous if you're the director. And um, what was fun though is you'd you'd wind your way into the woods and then you'd see the cabin there and you'd have to drive all the way up to it and it was enclosed in this kind of bowl in the woods uh, and then you know the lights would be on and smoke would be coming out of the chimney and so it wasn't like you had to get your mind into movie thinking because it was already so magical just arriving at set suddenly you were transported to Lincoln Land <laughs> and uh, I remember it would be like you could you could start shooting more easily as opposed to shooting a you know if you walk in and you have to shoot a bedroom scene and get your actors to the, that right emotional space and figure out how you're going to shoot a boring bedroom or something. Do you remember your first day? Yes. We did a, an, M, a, an MOS shoot, a no-sound shoot. Okay. And Oops. we did that because we had some swimming and some shirtless stuff and rolling around in the mud or whatever. And we wanted to get that stuff done before the cold came. And so like a week and a half before principal photography started we we shot this day of play was there anything ceremonious in your mind about it because or was it just a matter of fact just getting this just getting the stuff done i thought i would start ceremoniously you know you think oh if you're called upon i might say these few words or thank these specific people or let other people speak if there's but i remember yeah everyone i think is just kind of itching to go and make sure they do their part and you know Every, you know, everything goes according to plan, so I think it just started unceremoniously. What was the uh, post-production process like on Better Angels? Terry wasn't around for it, right? No, he wasn't around for anything. Okay. Uh, I don't even think he's seen the movie. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, I, was so, I was so happy by the end of post-production. Sorry, by the end of production, starting post-production, my friend Alex Milan, and we cut in San Antonio, and um, I would just start making my selects. He was doing kind of reorganization of those selects and starting to fix sound in them and order scenes. And the movie was nebulous in that way where it wasn't completely clear A, B, C, D, E, where everything would go. It, there, there was some freedom in how the story could unfold. And so we had to figure that out. There were the giant beats of, well, his mother does die here. That's can't change that but around that you know there's lots of can't problem that. solving of what felt right would 
Um, being a talented editor, um, how involved are you? I mean, are you, you mentioned selects, but I didn't know if you were having to do more shape, whether it was like a co-edit or anything. Because you're also used to a situation where um, you're used to um, collaborating very well with other editors, right? which a lot of editors I find uh, find that anathema. Whereas you've you've worked bounce you bounce ideas off with each other. Yeah, I've heard of editors that don't. On the current job I'm on right now, they kept checking, going, are you okay working with a team? And I'm going, of course, who isn't? But so I guess it does, it's out there, people that don't like to work with teams. But, um, yeah, I love to collaborate. I mean, I like to have my own station and sit right there and work on my own stuff. But I also like to walk into the other room and see what he, he or she's doing and also hand it off to them, and they give me what they're working on. And, you know, I got it this far, let's see what you do with it. Uh, I think that's the, I mean, that's more fun than anything to see what someone else brings to the table and surprises you with. Uh, I don't think, I mean, that, that makes you happier than if you achieve it yourself, you know? The one thing I've always noticed about you in any um, room of been working with you in film is you are one of the, and the reason I always thought you'd be a great director is you are one of the most encouraging people I've ever known. Well, that's sure nice of you, Shane. I know it's funny to sit and talk like this on this recording because you and I have spent so many, so many years in the submarine together. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're asking questions that you know the answer to. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm milking friends for early guests. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know what I learned from you is on the scene in tree of life. It's not in the movie, no fault of your own, but sure. that homeless man. Oh, man. Uh, and it was a difficult scene for, um, uh, continuity and, uh, performance and the dialogue and uh, I mean they were they it was a good I mean the elements were there but it, it's just one of those scenes that for some reason everyone had to edit a whole bunch but I remember the one that was able to crack it was you and it was through the strength of Sean Penn's reaction shots but then also cutting on their glances and that sounds like elementary editing but I was you know 21 years old and hadn't really edited before and I remember paying attention to you know cutting according to where they're looking i don't mean in physical space i mean emotionally well like, tr true to form you glances on your podcast you had to, you you had to give uh, sing me a compliment so yeah you better keep that in don't cut it out yeah well um so uh better angels goes to sundance and it was in the um next fest how was that what was that like it was in New Frontiers. New Frontiers, sorry. Next was years later or something. <laughs> uh, it was great. I, it was, I loved it. It was wonderful. And, you know, crossing the finish line with the team was amazing. And everyone was happy. You Where'd know, you guys mix? It was a mix? happy time, I remember. Where'd you guys and, mix uh, at? We mixed, uh, Joel Dougherty mixed it in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, wow. I think it was like a small Warner Brothers like Annex Studio. I don't know if it's still around. Okay, and um, um, how, what was the process after? You, you went back to working with Terry after Better Angels, or was there, and was it the same process of writing? Yeah, we, we, during the I day, just, write at night? I entered the stream of Knight of Cups, and uh, that went on for years. But yeah, it was exactly as you say, writing at night, reading a lot, and crafting Friday's Child and I had this new producer that I had just met Julio Quintana who made the vessel said you got to meet this guy 
uh, he worked with me for a short period on the vessel. You'll get along with him. And his name was Christian Sosa. And so I picked up with him trying to shape this new movie that I wanted to make. And he was kind enough to even take interest before there was a script or anything or cast. And so we were sort of just meeting over coffee any chance I could and trying to develop that film. Do you... Um... You are also one of the most, um, I mean, I think any working director is this way, um, and a lot of people lose their soul over this, and you have it, but you're one of the most relentless people being upbeat about the myriad ways a film will fall apart. Um, you, you always treat it like it's just an ever-evolving, changing thing, like you were talking about earlier with the uh, casting process. I mean, do you have any observations about the way it feels now versus either maybe just when you first started getting into finance or stories you know from people trying to get projects together maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago? You're saying, how's my pers- my perspective changed? Yeah, or do you know, do you think it's easier or harder? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm asking you a loaded question there, but... No, I, yeah, sure, I th- I'd say it's harder. I think, you know, the high that you feel of getting to make your first film is so intense and it feels so... Um, miraculous that that energy just drives you and you know I, I think as you make movie two three four five six if you're lucky enough to um, you know you 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 might realize the the peril around you more so that you maybe aren't as aware of with your first film and that's the beauty of it is like peril meaning what peril as in what can go wrong with a movie professionally, financially, the way that it's received, uh, your own friendships, partnerships, uh, everything, everything, you know, you don't realize that, uh, every, there's so much to gain and lose in an instant based on every aspect of filmmaking. And I think when you start out, you're not as aware of that. And that's what leads to bold, daring, beautiful work is you're it's almost like you're someone that's dancing and you don't realize that a thousand people are looking at you whereas <laughs> that's I think a great more analogy movies you make you you know you become more self-conscious or you become reactionary or you yeah you maybe pull your punches or you're doubling down on them in a stubborn way that you know is not serving uh you're you know serving the work so what was there's good and bad what were the um, um, pro- in between um, the two movies? What were the projects you um, edited on? Were they exclusively Terry movies? Uh, I worked on a few things. First up, it was that Khalil Joseph Arcade Fire thing, which was you mentioned that Happy Time. It was called the. It wasn't called the Reflector Tapes at the time, but that's what it would become. He didn't know if it was going to be a music video, a making of, an art installation piece. It was so many different things, and we were cutting all these spots for it. For, for the release of the band's album, Reflector, along with what Khalil wanted. I just remember being a very creative, brief time. But then, yeah, it was off to uh, Night of Cups, Song to Song, editing those. And, um, yeah, and then and, and though that went on for some time. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, to reflect, uh, based on what the reviews said at the time, what do you... How do you reflect on um, your influence from Terry now? I mean, it's a broad question for someone you've, if you've worked for someone for so long, but. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's definitely a lot of gratitude I feel 
toward him always. Uh, it's strange to talk about it objectively, as I'm sure it is for you sure. or Khalil or anyone in our circle because we're all family friends. So it's sort of like at the Thanksgiving table going, hey, AJ, what do you think of... Uh, <laughs> what do you think of Uncle Tim over there? Well, you know, but at the same time, uh, the, the early review, and it's funny, you're not hearing a lot of it from the age out reviews, but the early reviews were really relentless about it. And I mean, I saw it, but I was also kind of, kind of annoyed by it. It just, it just was one of those indictments of, of group thinking, modern criticism. And I didn't know if you, I mean, you, I mean, I, not, think, I think that they, they have a hard job. There's yeah, so sure. much coming. That, that there's so much, as you know, you're, you've written about film. I mean, there's so much coming at you, and your job is to put it through the easiest lens possible, and uh, make what you're writing appealing to a person who is probably clicking through seven things in sixty seconds. And so I think, um, you know, clickbaity, flashy titles and name drops and sort of compartmentalizing and disregarding is a lot easier way to write about something than it is to fully wrestle with it. Even if you're wrestling with it because of its weaknesses or because of its strengths, I think it's better to wrestle with something more and meet it more on its own terms than to, to, uh, your frame of reference for it. Yeah. Just to just quickly, uh, come up with, you know, whatever quick referencing or, or other things you can, I'm, I'm rambling here. Cause what I'm realizing is someone could easily say a critic could go, you're calling me referential. You're the one that's being referential. You leave us no choice, but to mention references. So. Well, the, then it's just a shouting be... match. It's a pointy fingers and yeah. Yeah. And who wins at that? Except, but, uh, but I, I think that there are, you know, there are, if you're influenced by Ron Howard or Robert Zemeckis, I think that that influence is less visible than if you're inspired by some other folks, you know, that, that may, that where that inspiration may reveal itself more easily. Well, you, um, you always had the best quote about, um, because we used to trade, um, ridiculous Terrence Malick comparisons and I, I mean my favorite one to this day was someone compared a baseball game to a Terrence Malick film and it's like oh, we are you are you just you can you want to find a fancier way to say slow and yeah well the term has become shorthand and culturally that's quickly digested like the way Kafka-esque mm. is now said by people that maybe haven't read Kafka but it within the lexicon like we all immediately know what that means or um, what's another one that'd be like that? Spielbergian? Poe. Like, I don't know if he's oh, like Poeian, but like right. Poe is now immediately linked with the macabre. Yeah, Spielbergian would immediately be shorthand for Wonderman. entertaining and also, uh, I don't know, childlike, sappy. I have no idea, but we all know what it means. Well, um, the, be the best um, definition I heard specifically to the, the, the uh, Terrence Malick one was you said that it was... It's poetic and it has stars in it. <laughs> uh, Do you remember saying that? I, I, you're, you're saying I said that in a I was being uh, negative, right? Yeah, well, when yeah, some, like for are, talking about lazy comparisons or just yeah. the lazy usage of the. Uh, yeah, because I think, and there's also, you know, sometimes you can be compared to folks and it's a good thing. It's positive, you know, if you're, 
you know, there, there, there are people that you can be compared to and it'll help you. And then there are people that it can hurt you. And so I think you don't want to go around thinking about it too much or looking in the mirror and questioning yourself all day. But I think that it'd be pretty, um, still defined to do that. Well, I think so. I mean, I mean, listen to it, learn from it, but also I think you can push back a little bit. You know, there are, you know, not only push back in the work, but push back in your own psychology or in any of these situations that you get in where maybe someone is confrontational about it and trying to demean you or put you in your corner to shut you up. As a filmmaker, it happens, or as an actor or anything, when you put yourself out there, that can happen. You put yourself publicly. out there, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah so you just got to make sure that some that you're controlling the story of your film a little bit, especially if they're trying to run away with the story. and You know, it's like they're trying to steal it from you and then... Uh, I remember my wife was robbed once and they drove away with her purse and they were throwing the stuff out of her purse as they were driving away. The stuff that they didn't want. And that, that image just came to my mind of that's sort of what can happen to your movie where it's like, you know, before you know it, they're driving away with it and they've ripped it apart and they're throwing it and then all of a sudden all that's left is the the fragments of what they rejected or what they accepted and maybe what they accepted is now gone. Or, you know, you just have to find your own purpose and meaning and, and what you're trying to do and then be satisfied with that. Because if you're just looking for them to well, give just... you the satisfaction of their compliments, that's going to be few and far between. Yeah, I was going to say, um, the other recurring thing with you always is you're, you're always one of the, um, the um, long view people. So you would always, um, if I come in and tell you about the, what Twitter film Twitter was saying, about the, raving about this movie, you'd always be the one that'd be very politely um, with a smile skeptical you'd be or not not even skeptical you'd just be more like huh i hope i hope it's as good when i see it <laughs> i don't remember that but that's funny yeah i mean i, I think it's i think it's it, it would be silly to obviously to um um wait for what critics think or, or to, yeah i think on the like on or, a, it's always fun rely or make it this worth before. that like if you look at you know I'm going to sound defensive when I say this. I don't mean to be, but, you know, Hitchcock didn't make a good movie until he was 10 movies in, or Ozu didn't make a good movie until he was eight movies in. Kurosawa also took a long time to hit his stride. Um, you know, D.W. Griffith, uh, John Ford, uh, they worked very strangely and were stumbling along until suddenly they're, they hit their stride and became uh, what we know them today. I'm not saying that that's... No, I, I, I relevant to any. This is what I'm saying for anyone that's listening. It can be inspiring uh, in any arena of creativity uh, to think how long you sometimes have to work at it to 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 make it click, or at least click with others if it hasn't been. Well, um, jumping to age out, um, you're feeling pretty strongly about age out, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm proud of the film. Uh, it's so it's been such a long process i feel sort of distant from it but i'm so glad it's finally out there yeah what were the movies uh, going to that um because i remember the first thing i told you when i saw it was i compared it or it was like a mix or it wasn't a mix but i remember thinking of uh, the conversation in clockwork orange yeah the, the the thing that's similar to the conversation is the spareness of like the way that he lives and then also that the saxophone score and I remember hearing Coppola, I think it was on the commentary, talk about how the, the saxophone is the instrument that's closest to the human voice. And he thought that, that there would be loneliness in that that would kind of haunt the hairy character in the conversation. Hairy line. And I think also Taxi Driver has a, right, well, that's a, trump, that's a trumpet score. Wait, I'm wrong. No, it has saxophone. 
No, you're right. Yeah. The saxophone. It's because he plays that. And um... so I think I would, I think that I just love Colin, and that also works out in that tradition of scoring. Um, so for sure, the conversation, and then um, that Dustin Hoffman movie, Straight Time. Mm. I love that that picture. It's kind of underseen, but it it parallels this in terms of its structure and the character. The guy that fresh out of jail is now on probation. He then uh, gets pulled back into petty crime, flies out of his probation, is on the run again. You know, um, you know what I just saw just a few weeks ago was his. Um, I, can't, I forget the guy's name is Ula Grossard or something. Exactly. His movie he did after that. It's got De Niro and um, Robert. Oh, Duvall. True Confessions. Yeah. Do you have, have you seen it? Do you remember? Yeah, it? with Duvall. Yeah, I just saw that recently. And, and what do like, you think? It was just. It was. Un- I think it was just um, bland, but not by its own fault. It was more just that, you know, James Elroy comes along a few years later and sensationalizes Black Dahlia, so everything. After, before then seems pretty really tame and and then the, just some of the the catholic church plot and stuff like that is is also unfortunately been re- relegated to tameness it, it, but it, it was it was bizarre just you, you know going through the filmography being excited about it, a duval de niro collaboration and then coming across something kind of bland yeah it's a movie that i return to like every five years curious if all what all think of it by going back to it but you're right that I, it, it never has floored me the way that straight time has yeah um um but what were some other movies for... oh then it'd be i'm sure I'm, you got to mention gus van sant so how did you Mala guys Noche, my own private idaho how did you guys hook up uh it was just through writing him a letter and uh during post-production i just told him how much i admired him and he was kind enough to take a look at the movie did he give notes uh, he did. He was it, but it actually reveals something about the end of the movie. So, oh, interesting. But he had a question of things should be re. The movie's a little nonlinear, and he had a. He was wondering if it should be made linear. But then he had the comment to his own notes saying, "I'm sure you've already thought of this, and maybe in fact it was written that way." <sighs> That's just what. And he was right that the movie, as written and shot, was completely linear. And then there, were in the, you know, in editing, we decided to withhold certain scenes and punt them to the end and uh that's what he was questioning so what's um what's your day-to-day right now you're are you you're on an editing job right now and then you're writing at night exactly yeah that's a fun new thing in life the last two or three years is um writing now for others i mean you know getting jobs in that way that's new what's it been like I love it i love writing i could do it every day all day it's just uh but writing for other others yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's with the hope of the job will be your own. But uh, does it just get you outside your own head, or what? It does that, and it also, um, I mean, it makes you wrestle with genres that you might not be working with, and characters that probably wouldn't pop out of your own head naturally. It, it like, uh, I remember reading that Godard biography by Brody, and he talked about, you know, people would come to him with money and an idea and they would want you know they'd be like oh it's a detective story we're going to shoot it in this city and he'd go okay great and so he would he would always wrap these projects to fit his own idiosyncrasies but it was getting him into stories worlds and characters that he otherwise would not have collided with so Um, yeah well what's the um is is there any um particular project that's catching fire right now and i mean if you don't want to talk about it that's fine too it's silly to say that you don't want to talk. I mean, I, I mean that, that feels corny to say it, 
but uh, no, it makes yeah, total there's, sense. There, there, there's some adaptations, literary adaptations, and uh, um, and then some original projects as well, and they're all in different states of having cast attached or this, that, and the other. Um, so you know our old saying, which is, they're all on the runway. You just got to see which one takes off first. I actually. That saying doesn't come to mind right now. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. You, that's an AJ original as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, AJ Edwards, um, I think that's it. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? This was such a blast, Shane. I am, I am so excited for this and for you, and uh, uh, I can't wait to hear all your other ones. But uh, thank you for this, sincerely. This was so fun. Okay.